Getting an investor's perspective on AI kills a few birds with one stone. Number one, companies who are looking to raise money. Uh, we certainly have plenty of entrepreneurs tuning into the podcast and reading our material online. Get to get an understanding of what's going to actually excite VCs. What have they historically invested in? What were sort of the triggers that let them know this is for me or this is not for me? Um, but even more broadly than that, I think more than simply entrepreneurs, we also have a lot of folks who tune into our show because they want to know how AI is going to impact their industry,、um, what sort of developments they should be making at their own companies and in their own products, what sorts of vendors they should be going with that are actually going to be durable and stick around and sort of help them grow in the long term. And I think an invest. Perspective helps shed a light on what are going to be some of the commonalities of companies that really matter in these industries that all of us leverage, whether it be data security,、uh, analytics, marketing. Almost no matter what industry you're in, you're leveraging these tools that are going to be increasingly embedded with artificial intelligence. And an investor's perspective, I think, is sometimes warranted in understanding: Is this the right vendor for me? Is this the right direction for our company?、Uh, is this realistic given what AI is capable of now?、Um, and we're lucky enough on this episode of AI and Industry to have Gary Swart on the line.、Uh, Gary is a partner with Polaris Partners, which is a VC firm.、Uh, he's out here in the Bay Area. Gary was previously CEO of Odesk, which is now called Upwork,、uh, which is a kind of Outsourced、uh, platform for sourcing workers, whether it be graphic design, writers, etc. Very, very, very big platform, kind of largest of its kind, as far as I know. I think、uh, while he was still at the helm, they had crossed the line of a billion dollars of business going across their platform in terms of paid work from payers to workers who were being paid sort of through their platform and tracked. Uh, over time, he's since left, and now he's in the VC world. He speaks today about some interesting dynamics of AI companies that he believes in, and some some elements of、uh, companies doing AI right、uh, that he thinks make for a durable company, make for something A he would invest in, but also make for something that B maybe you should be looking for if you're looking to you know check out an AI vendor or service provider for a specific space. Uh, in your own company, a specific function in your own company, he uses the example of inside sales,、uh, which is one of the investments of Polaris,、uh, as well as some other firms, and, and he touches on this dynamic of an aggregate proprietary base of data that improves experience for all other users. So,、um, with uh, inside sales, he talks about sales data from. A whole bunch of individual companies being able to aggregate to a better predictive capacity of the software at large to be able to predict appointments, predict revenue, predict close rates, etc.,、uh, because they're drinking in so much information.、Um, this was, you know, in the past solely in the purview of the Googles and Facebooks of the world,、um, and now is moving more and more to these smaller firms, relatively speaking, who are raising money and tackling really important、uh, problems in business. So this notion of Building something aggregately smarter by working with various clients in enterprise, I think, is an important dynamic to sort of tune into for people building technology products, people who are responsible for buying technology products, and certainly for any of you out there who are looking to talk to people like Gary and get some money raised for your firm.、Um, so, without further ado, this is Gary with Polaris Partners. Hope you all enjoy this one. So, Gary, the first question I'm interested in, in running by you here is:、uh, at Polaris, I imagine you guys see an, a number of companies. You know, you're fielding pitches consistently, not only yourself but you know the other partners there. 
Um, there's some companies you have invested in, some companies you have serious interest in that are leveraging artificial intelligence in a pretty serious way. And I can imagine that there might be some kind of common thread of where AI is actually driving value in those businesses. Like, hey, when, when it's actually compelling for an investor to want to get in on it, um, here's some of the kind of supporting roles or, or the, the value brought to the table by artificial intelligence today. Is there a way to put that into a nutshell? Well, I think, you know, generally data science is fundamentally changing the future of development, application and consumption. And historically, it was about aggregating, scrubbing, deduping, et cetera. And everybody claimed to do AI. But I think now what we're seeing is that the data is made actionable and people are developing or companies are developing effective methods for sort of unsupervised learning. And I think that's what's interesting now from an investment standpoint. It's mm. seeing how the data is made actionable. And that's, uh, that's what we're looking for, right? It's not just about um, gathering the data. It's about what kind of insights can you uh, give customers as a result of the data. Yeah, and I've, I've heard of kind of concepts of, you know, a proprietary data plume. That is to say, you know, what sorts of unique information that other companies might not have. Are you as a company able to, you know, aggregate, collate, collect, and kind of connect and then I guess make sense of and, and to, to your point of kind of making it actionable and that sort of that oftentimes that that kind of plume of proprietary data is, is sometimes necessary for for a company leveraging AI to be interesting um, because otherwise you know the actions you can take based on your data are not all that you know unique or novel or advantageous to what other people could do does that plume idea sort of resonate with what you were talking about there it does indeed, yeah. So we we invest in SaaS companies with what I call it predictive data in motion. And so there's not a SaaS investment we've made over the last couple of years that doesn't have both a unique data assets, but also prescriptive uh, elements to its core value. Hmm. And yeah, maybe what would be useful um, is, is if there's any particular companies you guys can kind of touch on, maybe investments you know, you've helped to lead or, you know, boards that you're sitting on now or what have you of companies that have sort of done something like that. We don't have to get into any more particulars than you're, you're comfortable with, but sort of what you mean by that kind of in motion concept that you just articulated. Yeah. So here's a, here's a good example from our portfolio. So a company called Inside Sales. And so Inside Sales takes the learnings from all of their customers, and those learnings benefit all of their other customers. So they have 100,000 users on their platform, more than 100,000 users on the platform, and they're passively observing the, the behavior of sales results. So what Inside Sales does is it's a dialer that enables you to more effectively and efficiently contact your customers. And every time you contact a customer, well, the platform learns from that behavior, from those best practices, and then that in turn benefits everybody else when making a call. So things, for example, like when it's raining in Denver, the CIO is more likely to pick up his phone. Um, you are more likely to close a sale in Atlanta when the Braves win a baseball game the night before. Uh, you know, you think of all of the signals that you know, millions and, and billions of sales calls, you know, from 100,000 users making all their calls on the platform, that moat gets wider because nobody else has that, that data, the benefit of all of that wisdom from all of those calls. So you're passively observing 
the behavior and then defining best practices from these behaviors. Got it. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to try to continue to flesh that out with you. I do think that this is a good example, Gary. I've actually never heard of anything like this in the sales world, certainly not the sales via phone uh, world, maybe via email or something. The the closest analogy I have is in maybe security companies where if they detect a certain pattern of activity that tends to be correlated with malicious activity um, and they can detect that in company A, they can also flag that as potentially, you know, volatile to company B, who's never seen that issue before, but since you know they they're subscribed to the same software, you know the, the the software has kind of learned to identify that particular pattern, and now it can warn everybody else. Now, what we're talking about is the same application in sales. I, I I wonder if I'm I'm thinking on the same wavelength. I can kind of paint the mental picture for the listeners as well. You're obviously intimately familiar with the company. Uh, it, it sounds like if there's a certain you know, way of doing things or, or like you had said, I mean, you were talking about baseball games and weather. So my supposition is, Gary, that in addition to how many calls were made and what were the roles of the people who were called and who was the person calling and potentially what we were selling and whatever the case may be, all those different data points are maybe stacked on top of, you had mentioned weather data, you had mentioned sports results. I mean, are these things actively getting pulled into uh, this kind of contextual data lake of information that surrounded the sales activity so that these patterns can be kind of coaxed out and lifted out by by machine learning? Or how is all that getting combined in? That's exactly right. And so when you can take the the dialer information and you can marry it with what happens in the CRM system, uh, you know, Salesforce or Dynamics or whatever it may be, and you know the outcome. So what happened? Did the Did the sale get advanced as a result of that call? Uh, you know, did they ask for more product information? Did the customer even respond? You know, all of the the situational data, and then you marry it with all the other data that you can pull into the system. Now you can really start to get prescriptive and predictive about what a rep should do. So a rep comes in in the morning and they have 200 calls they could make on that day. With a platform like this, you could prioritize those calls so they call them in the right priority order. This person's most likely to buy based on signals we have not only from you, but from these billions of calls going through our system. We know who you should call first. No, that, that's uh, that's a very strong value prop, and and that's kind of the the data plume, you know, coming into play as you had mentioned, kind of the moat getting wider uh, with use. Obviously, there's some pretty succinct advantages there, and I'm I'm trying to again imagine what this would look like in real time, and and make sure the mental picture can sit in the listeners' minds. You know, someone will sit down, they've got 200 calls. The number one that was sorted to number one, it may be based on a variety of factors from what I'm hearing from you. It may be based on the weather in that person's location. It may be based on, you know, the outcome of a sporting event, as you mentioned. It may may be based on the lead score of that person. It may be based on, you know, historical successes from our company calling similar types of companies. Maybe we're calling a certain kind of wholesaler. We tend to do well with wholesalers. Um... It sounds like there's a whole bunch of those contextual factors going into what's sorted at the top. Is this something that people can can parse out or pick out? I know that there is a perennial consideration with AI around kind of this black box concern, you know, the, the hospitals of the world, even if the, the machine can tell us, you know, what cancer treatment to use, if it can't say why, we're just not going to do it because we're a hospital and people have to trust us. In, in this world, that might not be as important. Is it possible, maybe the, the, and the reps may very well not need to know it, but is it possible to figure out why the heck are these three at the top as opposed to the ones that I really thought 
uh, we're going to be uh, closer to the top of the list. Yeah, I think, um, and I think there is, and you know, reps could of course override it if they don't. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that in turn creates more learning for the uh, for the engine, right? And so I think you know a big thesis for us is sort of the future of work, and it's where is the world of work going? And you know, you think about automation. You know, majority of the uh, manufacturing jobs in the U.S. We didn't lose them to offshoring or outsourcing. We lost them to automation. It's that we're 10 times more productive with 10 times less people. And so automation is a big part of it. And, uh, you know, there's also atomization. It's taking things and breaking them into smaller pieces. And then there's augmentation. It's taking the resources that you have and making them more efficient and more effective. And so, you know, in the case of inside sales, machine learning for predictability in sales forecasting capability has an 80% accuracy rate. So the engine is getting so good because they have so much data and so much usage over time that, you know, they're, they're seeing unprecedented capabilities here that sales leadership, sales management, and all the way down to the rep level just haven't had before. And, you know, you can take this same thing. It's funny you mentioned um, healthcare. One of our companies, Fitel, it was a population health company, and they had a huge, unique data asset, 50 million patient lives. Uh, 25,000 doctors, and they were capturing all of this uh, health data, and IBM bought them. And so you say, gee, IBM bought a population health data company. What's up with that? And essentially, it was to train Watson. So they wanted to take all of this data and feed it into Watson to make Watson's uh, predictability uh, and capability uh, better. So they want the the benchmarking and they want to be able to uh, use the engine, predict patient outcomes and provider performance. And so it's a perfect example of just another vertical application of a SaaS vendor that had a a significant data asset. They didn't, uh, IBM didn't want it for the SaaS capability. They wanted it for the data asset. Yeah, just purely buying the data asset. And and I think I've talked to other investors where they've said things like, you know, eight or 10 years ago, even probably maybe four years ago, if somebody said, man, and we're going to collect so much data and at some point we'll make a bunch of money off it. That's kind of like, all right, like that's a goofball idea. Like let's kind of talk about, um, you know, how you're going to make money and stuff. But in today's day and age, in the right sector and, and with the right kind of proprietariness of, of the information, that that's quite possible, I suppose. I mean, maybe it's not going to be what you want to bank on entirely to predicate your entire business model and the way that you're going to, you know, reward your investors and employees. But it but it does sound like the data in and of itself, in that case of the company you just mentioned, um, if I'm not mistaken, they were you know a SaaS provider like what we're talking about with inside sales. They had built up all this information from people just running their software to the point where a big dog like like IBM would want to come in and just say let me have that. Kind of like they did with weather.com, right? I mean, we were talking about weather data influencing sales. You know, IBM bought uh, bought weather.com probably for somewhat of similar reasons, right? Mix that data in with, you know, trucking and routing of vehicles. Mix that data in with, you know, whatever other health factors they're interested in. I suppose data in and of itself now has more value than maybe it did half a decade ago. Yeah, but you hit hit on a key theme, which is at the core, you know, sort of act one, it's a SaaS business. So inside sales gets paid for every sales rep that uses that yep. software. 
And, you know, in the case of um, Fitel, they had a business, right? They were selling uh, software as a service. Uh, there was a data element at scale. Uh, you know, one other quick example is a company we recently invested in called Falconry. And they're using time series data to make operators more efficient and more effective without having to wait for data scientists. So imagine you could put the capabilities of a data scientist in the hands of an operator and they're, they're targeting manufacturing. And so manufacturers want to improve the speed and quality of, of their, their processes. And so now they can, right, by leveraging this software as a service. They're willing to pay for it, it adds value on day one, but again, at scale, they have data assets that nobody else has. So it's you're going to pay uh, for the right to give me your data, as is everybody else. Everybody else is going to benefit from that aggregate data. And then at scale, that data becomes not only the moat, but also a very valuable asset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It becomes something that bolsters the value prop of the business. So people are more likely to pay that monthly or annual subscription because it's it's a more powerful product or maybe you can charge more whatever the influence is there um, and at the same time it's building up kind of this interesting sort of nest egg that might have worth on top of it when you know liquidity time comes in whatever way shape or form you know acquisition or otherwise the company will be seen as even more valuable uh, not only for the increasing value of the product but for the lake that that is is its own uh, and this is kind of an interesting dynamic uh, across industries and seems to be sort of a commonality now among a number of uh, investments. You've made a number of, of investments um, from some of the other folks who we've talked to uh, who, who run VC firms or partners in the coming. And, and I think that those dynamics, at least from my perspective, where I'm sitting, have altered in maybe the last five years in terms of how often that's possible. You know, you probably could have convinced somebody five years ago, hey, Gmail is really good because Gmail handles email for so many people and uh, when it learns about spam and when it learns about how to filter things and when it learns about you know whatever else, um, those benefits can be kind of brought along to everybody else using Gmail to make sure that their user experience and their you know anti-spam experience is better. And that would be sort of digestible and understandable. To do that in you know industrial internet of things or in, you know, phone sales calls, very much less common five years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it seems like maybe five or 10 years into the future, there will be other facets that will be permeated by AI. Maybe there will be sort of, you know, further or different dynamics that will come into play, or maybe it'll just be more industries that get brought in. How do you see the dynamics we've talked about thus far, Gary, altering in you know the half decade or decade ahead as, as these technologies sort of become mainstream? Well, I think, you know, if you look at the evolution, there's sort of been major forces shaping the opportunity, you know, starting with big compute and then big data and then smart algorithms. And, you know, now we're even seeing smart voice. And so, you know, big compute is by no means over. We're, we're very much on our journey, but the, the growth of the businesses there has been huge. And they, this has enabled, you know, development transformation, first IT transformation, then development transformation, and now cognitive business transformation, right, with AI and cloud. And I don't see that going away. You know, 90% of the world's data creation has happened in the last two years. Yeah, it's pretty, right? wi pretty wild to think about, really pretty wild to think about. 
and so I suppose you're you're estimating that we'll have some some degree of a continuance of these same trends, and maybe you know is it is it possible, Gary? I mean, this is maybe a little bit of an odd question. Is it possible that this you know data plume growing advantage widening moat will will almost be ubiquitous across industries that whoever's running the show with you know uh, uh, diagnostic machine vision will will have a similar kind of position. Whoever you know ultimately dominates uh, the phone sales game will have a, a similar kind of a position. The industrial IoT predictive repairs on your machines when we detect certain patterns uh, with certain sensors, that that also uh, will be kind of an expanding moat game and that it, it might be a little bit more winner-take-all across the board where technology is used. I mean, is that reasonable to suppose or think about? Well, I do think there's going to be continued verticalization, but, you know, um, the Bank of America estimates that 14 trillion will be the economic impact of AI. And in the, in the next, in the next uh, do we know a time frame? Uh, 2020. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. And AI bots will power 85% of customer service by 2020, according to Gartner. I'll be excited for those days uh, so long as they can do the job, man. I mean, I, I hate waiting on, on hold. Right. So you start to think about, um, you know, we talked earlier about automation and, you know, when will the robot take my job? Well, for certain jobs, for the, you know, the highly cognitive uh, jobs, it'll be faster than you, than you think, right? I mean, it's the most known and repetitive tasks will be automated. Then, you know, discrete and predictable tasks can be atomized. And then the complex and ambiguous tests at the top of the stack will be will be augmented with AI, but soon enough we'll move up that that value chain, right? Yeah, yeah. Which brings us to some wackier and bigger picture questions, and we have time for in this particular interview. Um, but it's curious to understand, and maybe important for the people listening in to understand, you know, the perspective from from folks like Polaris around what the future of industry looks like. Do you think, in, in closing, do you think that the that, that there will be more of a winner takes all inness uh, within different industries or, you know, you mentioned verticalization um, within different verticals that maybe there will be kind of a, um, a grander leveling of competitors when, when someone gets to a certain degree of scale. I'm not even saying that's good or bad, by the way. I don't have a value judgment on it. I'm just talking about it as a dynamic. Is it possible that at a certain degree of expansion of the moat, there just aren't any other real competitors in, in a particular space? You know, we could say kind of like Google in search engines, you know, is, is that reasonable to suppose across other industries or verticals as this becomes kind of the norm, this expanding mode that you talked about? Well, I think the verticalization will uh, prevail. And I don't think we'll see one horizontal winner take all. Oh, no, I doubt that. I highly doubt yeah. that. But I, I think it'll be, you know, there, there'll be opportunities for us to reimagine you know, talent and work and the way we get work done and even industries, you know, old industries will be uh, continually transformed based on this capability. Yeah, indeed. And uh, th those are those are large, grand concerns for the, our policy interviews later on <laughs> in terms of how that will actually affect society at large. But I think it's important for all of us business folks to contemplate pretty seriously as well. Gary, thank you so much for being able to share your perspective with us here on the Tech Emergence Podcast. My pleasure, Dan. Have a great day.
that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.